brown paper napkins. September 2014, Concord, California. One year and four months since my mother's death. Age 31. Survivor relief. It was the best explanation I had for booking us a cabin in Tahoe less than 24 hours after experiencing some version of a horrible respiratory flu. During the worst of it, two weeks from extreme sleep deprivation, continuing to breastfeed Violet after our failed weaning attempt, and unprocessed grief to get up and walk, I had to crawl to the bathroom. In the middle of the night after my fever broke, I used the hallway wall as support and staggered to the living room where Violet was screaming for me. Tom had held her off for hours, keeping her from my room so I could recover, but her cries consumed me until her pain became my own, a compulsive need to relieve her suffering. It's okay, I told him and her and me. I can take her. I couldn't really. I could barely stand, but she needed me, so I did anyway. As soon as we laid back down, she settled, falling asleep on my breast while I tried to hold on, wondering if I'd reached the point where my body was no longer able to fight. Inside a young family, we were sick constantly, and they weren't the colds from my youth, where I'd get to stay home from school, my mom buying me a bag of Ricola for my sore throat and plummy cough that was somehow fun to experience, the sound closest to an animal I'd ever be. These viruses hit us one after the other, every few months, all different with the same results. Sick and tired and tired and sick. But our baby-wearing years didn't involve free breaks. Without any consistent help for the girls, rest was reserved for when it was the only option. You decided to book it? Tom asked. He had come home from work during his lunch to check on me. He stood at the side of the twin futon mattress I was lying on that was placed directly on the floor. Next to me was a second twin mattress where Violet slept, another staple of those early years composed of musical beds and bedrooms while we tried to discover how to best co-sleep. We never found a good fit. I just figured a look was enough to express my reasoning. Tom and I both knew what that time in our lives felt like from the inside. For months, we had talked about escaping to the mountains for the weekend, but it never happened, getting pushed to the side for whatever reason. It should be good, good for us. I said more for me than him. Brought to my knees again, I was familiar with hitting rock bottom and the desperate need to believe there was still something waiting for me on the other side. With a fragile kind of hope, I thought that perhaps, at least temporarily, we could find reprieve from our haze of sickness and obligation, our relentless routine, our situation with Violet. But by then, life had shown me, no matter my intention, there was no guarantee with the outcome. We were going to the mountains because in that moment, it felt like the only choice there was, to prove we were alive and that we'd continue to survive. It was high 90s in Concord when we left, and I didn't have the foresight that Tahoe and the Sierras three hours north would be significantly colder. It's what I got for my spontaneity, packing peak of summer clothing for an early fall climate. Out of the shower, I dressed in every article of clothing I had brought, thin tea on top of thin tea. It was our second night. We were leaving in the morning, 
and the family had gone to a local hot spring while I stayed back to make dinner. That was the plan, at least. But the plan wasn't working because it was freezing and too early to start dinner. Since January, I'd moved into a constant state of pressure. Even when I was alone, I was under pressure. Balancing on a tightrope, both hands weighted, anxious for the inevitable moment when my foot would slip and I'd drop something. The mountain air was meant to cleanse, but I was air-hungry from the small change in altitude, and Tahoe's normal blue skies were hazy from nearby forest fires. I felt too unsteady to walk the thoughtful grounds, and there was no Wi-Fi or cell service. I couldn't focus on a book, and the cabin would have been 1970s charming to some, but for me it was oppressive, claustrophobic, with outdated wood paneling and carpeting that was worn from too many harsh winters. In the past, this would have been the moment I'd pick up the phone and call my mother and everything would be okay. A person can die, but your habits, your unhealthy attachments and ineffective ways of coping don't die with them. The routine so programmed in my subconscious, my response to stress and fear, automatic. But for whatever reason, at this particular low, I couldn't lie to myself anymore. The last four years of her life, her presence didn't, couldn't soothe me. Every time we were together, I'd be reminded that she was dying. I mean, we all die, but she was dying. That she wasn't going to live out her plan to move into remission and write a book about her recovery. I always say I have a quiet mind because I can have one thought and see it through to the end without veering off track or getting distracted. But I'm not sure panic is ever quiet. What will happen when I burst from the pressure? What if I can't breathe? What if I collapse from the weight? What if next time I can't get back up? What if I never recover? What if, what if, what if? I paced the small living room, scanning the dark corners for my specks of hope, but they were impossible to see. My quiet mind full of fear, I went to the mountains to get out, but I couldn't outrun myself. We're taught and then obsessed about change being this dramatic fireworks explosion, but really, it's always a quiet moment, the division between past self and future self. On the tiny kitchen island, illuminated by dim lighting, sat a square pad of white paper. Next to it, a game-sized pencil. Like it was a month prior in our driveway, sleeping in the back of the car with Autumn, no more than a gentle impression, my inner knowing nudged fear aside to remind me of Isla, of wanting to write a story that made me feel the way that story made me feel. Throughout their toddler years, my girls opened me to imagination, to experience the world, a mundane walk with wonder, but complex, make-believe worlds still weren't me. The common question that authors seem to roll their eyes at is, where do you come up with your ideas? I never roll my eyes. It was my own question also, curiosity, the desire to even ask the question to begin with, means there's already a seed of want in you too. Just like poetry, there is no one right answer. It's the same as asking someone how they experienced the scent of their mother. And now I know it changes. As I change, ideas change. But for me, since reading deals with the balance of head and heart, it makes sense that my writing does too. I've never been one of those writers with a million story threads or even more than one at a time. It's that quiet mind. And it's okay. One is all I need. I started writing. I filled no more than five little scraps of paper with an opening scene. It was going to be a love story, 
the kind of movies I loved to watch as a teen, the kind of book I had just finished reading. Coming up with names were and continue to be one of my favorite parts of my novels. The two main characters' names, Penn, I stole from one of the actors from Gossip Girl. The other, love, what I desperately needed. Hope was no longer specks I had to gather off the floor. It was a game-sized pencil, a piece of paper, me. I went to the mountains to get out, but the solution had been there all along. It was always about going in. After dinner, and after I got the girl settled in the one bed, I scooted into the double sleeping bag with Tom on the floor, my five pieces of paper clutched in my right hand. We were already teasing, shushing each other from the loud sounds the nylon made as we burred closer. It's nothing, but I, while you guys were gone, I started writing this story. It was dark. I could still hear the shape of his smile. Yeah? Is it okay? I mimicked his smile. I mean, can I read it to you? I covered my head with the sleeping bag. Nervous laughter spilled out before I'd even started. My words mirrored our dynamic. Penn's favorite dish that love cooked from scratch was chicken pot pie because, duh, Tom's favorite dish I cooked from scratch was chicken pot pie. Like any relationship, we invest time in or muscles we want to develop. My writing and storytelling will expand and strengthen, but in the beginning, it was one step forward and then the next, reflecting whatever was right in front of me. When we returned home, I placed the five pieces of paper in the last slot of the letter organizer that sat at the far end of my desk. They were hidden, invisible to anyone but me. For the next few weeks, if I found myself in the car waiting in between errands or appointments with a need to get out of my quiet mind full of fear, I'd find some brown paper napkins in my purse or the glove compartment and sentence by sentence continue the story, even when the relief lasted no more than a handful of minutes. I'd get out by going in. I'm Jasmine Rasmussen, author and narrator of Saved, a memoir on purpose. Join me weekly for an oral telling of my novel, written in verse and prose, broken into short, digestible episodes, I'll guide you through my journey back to self. Click the link below to subscribe or go to jasmineleahrasmussen.substack.com to find out more.